right, good morning, church. Good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, today, we're gonna be back in Acts chapter four, um, where we, we left off in our series, Can I Get a Witness? And Joel covered the first three chapters in Acts, and he is, he's out today, and uh, he's supposed to be in Israel today, but I, I promise you, your pastor is not in Israel right now, so you guys, you guys can know that. But um, we are gonna be back in Acts. We're gonna, be, we're gonna be looking at chapter four today. What I wanna do real quick is just give a review of uh, where we've been throughout Acts and um, what we've seen because Joel's been the last couple of weeks talking about kind of the conflict going on in the Middle East and prophecy and stuff like that. So um, back to chapter one, we see that Jesus gave uh, this command to stay and to wait on the Holy Spirit. And then when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're gonna be my witnesses here locally in Jerusalem and Judea and then um, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus ascends into heaven and then we see in Acts chapter two, this major event occur. Um, on the day of Pentecost, this festival, people from all over had come to Jerusalem to celebrate and the Holy Spirit comes down and the disciples and the believers, they're speaking and people are hearing it in their own language. And um, Peter has a platform in that moment because people are like, who are these uneducated men that are speaking like this and how are we hearing them in their language? And so Peter takes the opportunity when he has a platform and what's he, what's he do? He shares the gospel. When he has an opportunity to share the gospel, he's given this platform, he takes it. And so in that moment, on that day, it says about 3,000 were added to the believers. So there were about 120 believers and then we go to 3,120. And then in chapter three, the event we saw, the last thing we looked at in the book of Acts was that uh, Peter and John are passing into, into the temple, uh, going to pray, and there's a man outside the temple gate called the Beautiful Gate, um, this lame man where he sat and he begged for money. If you guys remember, Peter looks at him and says he doesn't have any money to give him, but he has something better to give him. And um, he says, you know, in, in, in the name of Jesus to stand up and walk. And this man is healed in that moment. And again, he's given a platform God uses that healing to give him a platform to share about Christ. And he's calling people to repentance. He's telling them that Jesus is the Messiah. Now up to this point, when we get to, the, to chapter four, what we haven't seen, but what's coming and what's, what we're gonna see today and then continues on through the book of Acts is an opposition and this persecution of the early church. And uh, it wasn't a surprise to him because Jesus told them that it was coming. So if you, if you put yourselves in the shoes of um, the religious authority and the, the, leader, the leaders in first century Palestine, in their minds, they just killed the leader, right? They've killed the leader. They've taken him out. He's gone. These people, the few followers he had, they're now running scared. And so we're, they feel like, you know, we're pretty good. They're not really worried about these people. Well, then they gained 3,000 followers, right? And I would imagine at that time, like maybe some alarm bells and stuff are going off, but um, even with that, even with that, that's still a fraction of the number of Jews and Romans that were living there in Israel at the time. And so on top of that, the Jewish religious leaders, they see these people as having no power. They see them that they're few in number, they're inexperienced with leadership. I mean, their leaders are, are people that were fishermen, right? So they see them being inexperienced with leadership and then they know that they're not looking to fight physically. That's been proven. They're not looking for, for a fight. Peter did use a sword, cut off an ear, but Jesus put it right back on, right? So um, the last thing is they're not sanctioned by Rome. Judaism, um, the way that they were practicing it, they were the, the keepers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they were the keepers of Judaism in first century Palestine. And they were sanctioned religion. And these guys were not. But then in chapter three, this undeniable miracle happens where this lame man, he gets up, and he walks and Peter starts proclaiming to the crowd um, that the authorities, these religious leaders, they had Jesus killed, but then God raised him to life. And so because of this message that he's bringing, persecution, although it hasn't kicked in yet, it's about to. And Jesus, like I said, he warned them of this all throughout Jesus' teachings in the gospel. He's warning them that this persecution is coming. In John 15, 18 through 20, he told them, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 
So Jesus promises them, hey, it's coming. The persecution's coming. Chapter four in Acts, it's here. So what happens though, and, and you'll see through Acts as Joel comes and continues to, to go through Acts with us, is that the persecution never seems to help toward the end goal, which is ultimately stopping the spread of Christianity. It never seems to work. In fact, it only seems to ignite the spread of Christianity. And that's because Jesus said he was gonna build the church and then you have these followers that believe that and now they're empowered by the Holy Spirit and you're not slowing them down at that point apart from taking their lives. They're not slowing down. And so um, the church still grows. Today's sermon is titled A Spirit Empowered Life. And um, I told the, the first service that if you looked at the back of the life guide and it might say that I'm, I'm speaking on there, I hadn't looked at it, so I don't know. But maybe you saw that I've got like a little bit of alliteration going on and some P's and stuff. So I feel like that if it didn't say I was speaking, you might look at the notes and think, oh, Joel's speaking because it was, there's like six words that start with a P. So I was feeling good about myself for um, making a life guide to the back of it, how, what it looks like when Joel speaks more. So maybe we can get more like Joel. I don't know. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, <laughs> uh, but number one, the first point is a life that provides an opposition, a life that provides an opposition. Verses one through three in Acts chapter four, it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. So here here you are, you got these guys, they're obeying God. They're trying to follow what Jesus told them to do. Um, They're trying to take this opportunity, this platform that they have to share Jesus. And as they're speaking, the religious leaders, they're annoyed with this. And it says that they came upon them. And the the Greek word is saying like that they suddenly came and they got them and they took them. It's like they shut it down in an instant. Stop talking about this. And they took them away and they locked them up. Um, This would have especially annoyed the Sadducees because the Sadducees, if you remember from Jesus's encounters with them, they did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. Um, they did not believe that the Old Testament was authoritative. They only believed um, in the first five books of the Bible, the, Pen- the Pentateuch, that that was authoritative. And um, they were, they were kind of like the liberal wing, actually, the liberal sect of the Jewish leaders at that time where the Pharisees were much more conservative. But, but this is why when like they um, approach Jesus and try to catch him in a trap and talk about uh, resurrection, and try and show them that it's not true. Jesus, instead of using other Old Testament passages, he goes all the way to the Pentateuch to show them that no, there is a resurrection from the dead. So, so we, we get back to the, the situation that Peter and John find themselves in. One thing that you'll see in verses one through six is that um, there's a lot of people, a lot of um, authority that's against them in this moment. You see the priest, the Sadducees, the captain of the temple rulers, the elders, the scribes, all the family from the high priest, Anaz, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, um, lists all of them and says that they had come against Peter and John in this moment. And so why are they so mad? It's not so much that they, that they healed a guy that was crippled, that this lame man's walking, but it's about the message that they're bringing, right? They don't want this message that Jesus, who they rejected, who they killed, has been raised from the dead. And... Um, I'll make a parallel here to today because we see this in a sense in the world that we live in. The world's okay. And even in America, it's like, it's okay with a little bit of religion. It's okay for people like giving glory to God or, or even sharing your, your testimony, a personal testimony in the world says like, yeah, that's great. That's your truth. That's your story. But you know, we're all just out here trying to do the best we can trying to figure out what truth is. And that's kind of a response that you would get from the world. Um, The world is fine with Christian organizations building hospitals and doing humanitarian work and feeding people that are hungry. But if you start getting too exclusive about Jesus, you start talking about repentance, you start talking about new life in Christ, the world wants to shut that down. That's when it's like, they push back. It's a little bit too offensive. That's where someone might feel a little bit uncomfortable. You know, um, we have election season coming on us and you'll hear politicians, especially on the national stage, you know, with a God bless America slogan or talking about God or whatever. But you notice that not many of them get really into the weeds about what they really mean when they say that. You know, you know it's very rare that you hear an athlete or a celebrity or, some, or someone talking about 
this isn't my end goal. This isn't what I'm living for. It's just a platform to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner who God, God saved. I've been saved by his grace. If it starts getting into that, starts getting exclusive, you know, people get a little bit weird about that. They don't want to hear that. And that's when there's pushback. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 12, 51, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now Jesus is coming again and there's going to be peace on earth. And those who know Christ are going to have the ultimate peace in the presence of God and joy eternally, right? But right now, right now in the meantime, his teachings, the exclusivity of the gospel, it causes division and he warned of this. And that's what you see here starting to happen in Acts chapter four. So if you are living a spirit-filled life, you're empowered by the spirit, you're seeking after Christ, you're following him daily, there's gonna be an opposition there. Why? Because Satan hates the church It's the bride of Christ. Satan hates the church. And you're walking around living daily with a bunch of people that are are living in the flesh and know nothing about a spirit-empowered life. And the things of the flesh are opposed to the things of the spirit. So there's going to be this opposition that, that naturally is there. I'm not saying that you're actively going out trying to antagonize people or trying to cause an opposition to come. The point is, if you were living a godly life conforming to the things of God rather than conforming to the things of the world... There's gonna be an opposition. It's gonna happen. Jesus was persecuted. He told his followers, you will be persecuted. You know, Christian persecution, is, it's widespread throughout the world. I don't think a lot of people are really aware of how widespread it is here in the States because it's kind of, it's kind of minimal here in the States. Um, I think Satan works in a lot of other ways though here. And, and um, it presents itself maybe in the form of pride, of selfishness, of that you wanna be accepted. You're desiring acceptance um, from the world. Maybe it's a lack of compassion and, and caring about the salvation of others, a lack of desire to see other people saved. And then you're, you're so consumed and so busy with, uh, we get this way, just like trying to build this own kingdom, our own earthly kingdom to have this American dream. And we can be so distracted, so distracted by activities and possessions and entertainment and a career and all these things. Where, and then churches are closing their doors. Like where's the need for persecution? It's not really a need for persecution because we see persecution ignites the church. So Satan can just take his hands off and say, hey, you guys keep at it. Most of them aren't sharing the gospel anyway. This isn't the case in much, much of the world and it's certainly not the case here in Acts 4 for how the believers were living. It goes on verse three and it says, they were arrested and they were held overnight. And this is because the Sanhedrin, which was the, ultimately the Supreme Court of um, the people over religious matters, the Jews over religious matters. It was against their own laws that they were not to conduct trials at night. This is one of the many reasons that the trial and execution of Jesus was completely illegal based on their own guidelines, their own, their own laws. Um, remember though that the Jews, they're under Roman occupation. And so Rome is in complete control. The Sanhedrin, they, they're given authority, they're sanctioned, they have authority over religious matters. If it's something civic, if it's something like that, then Rome's under control. Rome was like, we don't really care so much about these people's religion. If they have disputes over that, whatever, as long as they're keeping the peace and as long as they are paying taxes to Caesar, we're good. And so that's where the Sanhedrin had some authority. And so we get through verse three and then verse four, it's kind of like it's almost out of place for what the whole passage, what the whole... Um, this whole section's talking about, but, but um, Luke makes sure that we, we know this in verse four. He shows that the opposition is not having any luck slowing down the growth of the church. So the second thing I want you guys to see, point number two, is a life that produces fruit. Verse four, it says, many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. So we had 120 people, grew by 3,000, it said in um, chapter two. And now we see here, 5,000 men, so plus women and children, maybe 10,000, not for sure, but it's growing. It's growing a lot. And um, what we see and what we see throughout Acts is that a life that's led by Christ, a life that is spirit-empowered, produces fruit. That means it's disciples who are making other disciples, who are leading other to Jesus, who are discipling them, and then they are then leading others to Jesus. And what starts to come into view here in Acts is that as these leaders seek to oppress the message of the gospel, the gospel spreads. And I believe this is one of the greatest pieces of evidence of Christianity. And I say that, you think, think for a second, the second um, largest religion in the world is Islam. And, and Islam spread um, in, its, in its early years, hundreds of years after Christ walked the earth, um, 
on the, on the tenets that if you don't believe this, then we're gonna kill you. So out of fear, right? If you don't believe this, we're gonna kill you. They're on a war path, right? And Christianity saw the opposite thing happen. They had people who had nothing to gain from a worldly perspective for following Jesus that are converting to Christianity, which means that you're usually saying yes to persecution and saying yes to a harder life at that moment. They they understood they weren't joining some new social club that was gonna give them status or give them wealth or somehow save their, their lives, their physical lives temporarily. And they're literally saying yes to this invitation that a lot of times was to come and die. But they're following the teachings of Jesus. And so I'm gonna keep sprinkling that in and going back to the teachings of Jesus because they are actually following what was told to them. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which is a call to come and die um, daily and follow me. This was the invitation from Jesus, but thousands were counting the cost here and they're saying, yes, the cost is not too much. I'm gonna follow. Luke 14, 33, Jesus says, any one of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Paul, later on in um, Acts 14, he warns that it's gonna be through many hardships that believers are entering the kingdom of heaven. And then he writes in a letter from jail to the Philippians and tells them that he counted the cost and that all that the world could offer him was garbage compared to knowing Jesus as his savior. And so we see later in Acts, actually how persecution and the believers scattering, how that leads to the, to the gospel being spread. In Acts 8, 1, right after Stephen is martyred and Saul, before he is converted to Paul, is going through and bringing believers and throwing them in prison. It says there arose a great, on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now those who were scattered, what did they do? They hide in caves? No, they They kept having church and houses. They kept spreading the word. So that was a way that God used for the gospel to spread throughout the region. They remained bold and they did it for good reason. And a lot of this is still true today. A lot of truth still today that maybe some of you guys don't realize, but um, a lot of the areas where Christianity is growing faster than anywhere else is in persecuted regions of the world. In Iran, it's illegal to convert to Christianity and um, Bibles have to be smuggled into this country, but it's estimated, and I know this is a, a really wide range, but it's because it's an underground church, so they're not really for sure. But uh, between 300,000 and 1 million Christians are in Iran then. And if you read about it, and people that have come out of there and, and aren't in the country and are telling about it or are doing it anonymous, anonymously, they are committed to discipleship. They don't know if the leader that they have one week is gonna be there standing with them the next week. They're, they're not able to come to a place like this and sit and listen to a person preach week after week. And so the believers have to be discipled and have to be able to share the word and have to be able to make other disciples. And that's how the church continues to grow so rapidly. In China, the average growth of Christians has been about 10% annually since 1979. Um, Some estimates show that it will be China, a communist country that sanctions religion will be the most um, number of Christian people by the year 2030 and around 100 million people. And now 70% of them though are having to attend services, church services that aren't sanctioned by the government. What's that mean? It means that if you actually want to follow all the teachings of the Bible, if you want to share everything that's in the Bible, then you're going to have to do it with some civil disobedience because what the government sanctions, you're not allowed to share everything about Christianity, right? So most of the people that are coming to Christ, they're doing it through an underground church. But God works through the persecution of his children to bring glory to his name. And in Acts 4, you start to see this fruit, right? You start to see it in Acts chapter 2. And you see the people come to Christ. It's not something that's natural. It's it's the work of the Spirit. Um, And if you're actively living a Spirit-empowered life, then it's going to be evident by the fruit that comes from your life. The third thing I want you guys to see is a life that presents boldness. Reading in verses five and six, it says, on on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Anaz and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who are of the high priestly family. So the the Sanhedrin's gathered. All the who's who of Jerusalem um, when it comes to the religious establishment and Peter and John 
are brought before them. And keep in mind, these are the same people that a couple of months earlier had their leader crucified, handed over to the Roman authorities and crucified. Caiaphas was the high priest then. He is now. His father-in-law, Anaz, was the high priest before him, still had a lot of authority, a lot of say in what was going on there in, in um, uh, Judaism. Caiaphas, some things that you'll, if you were just reading through scripture about Caiaphas, he predicted Jesus's death in John 11. He plotted to kill Jesus in Matthew 26. He charged Jesus with blas- with blasphemy in Matthew 26. Um, he's, he's the one that sent Jesus to Pilate in John 18. So how are these apostles, how are these guys going to react when they're standing before these people that have been so instrumental in killing their leader? So key to, to Jesus being crucified. This would have been a scene of serious power and intimidation that they're facing with a group of leaders that could condemn them and could have them killed, right? In, in verse seven, it says, this is what they wanna know. The first thing they asked. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired by what power or by what name do you do this? So they start by wanting to know who, who's given you this authority to do what you are doing because we are the ones in control of Judaism, of the religious establishment. Like you have to go through us. Where did you get the authority from to do what you're doing and to proclaim this resurrection of Jesus without our approval. And what we run into here is another instance of something that happened that Jesus told them was going to happen. In Luke 12, 11 and 12, there's other places you can find this throughout the gospel accounts. He says, when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I've heard people um, before a conversation like use this verse to say like a, script, um, a pastor shouldn't prepare any teaching or shouldn't like do any sermon prep or anything like that. But you can see that that's obviously taken out of context. Jesus is telling them that when you are being persecuted and when you're before the leaders and the, the, you have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit will empower you to say what you need to say in that moment. And so now we find ourselves in this situation. In Acts chapter four, we've got two fishermen versus the entire religious establishment, the power in Israel. And you remember when um, Jesus was on trial and Peter followed him and he's asked, you know, he's told you're with him or, or you knew him. And three times he denies him. I mean, he's scared, can't even defend that he knows Jesus to a girl standing by the fire. And now he's in this situation or he's in front of people that can do him harm and can do his family great harm. And the difference now is that he has seen the resurrected Christ. He has walked with him. He has talked with him. He's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so he has a power that is living within him that the people that are trying to intimidate him know nothing about, right? And so verse eight, it says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, and I'll pause right there for a second to point out that he is filled again with the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was not indwelling him. This does not mean that he was being saved again, but this word indicates an ongoing present action. It's a present tense word that something that began in Acts chapter two that God did, he was continuing in their lives. The Spirit fills us numerous times, not just for salvation, but for empowering. And it was um, that power of God from the Spirit that came over Peter and gave him the ability to speak with true boldness and with true courage. And uh, maybe you think like, well, I, I got saved when I was young and I, I don't think that I feel like the Holy Spirit's ever filling me or empowering me or, I say this not to condemn, I feel that too. Maybe, maybe we're not trying anything where we're relying on the Holy Spirit. Maybe we're not trying anything where you're relying on faith. Maybe you're not sharing the gospel with someone where you need the spirit to be at work in that moment because the situation they find themselves in is they're in trouble and God fills them with the spirit and gives them the words to say in that moment as Jesus had promised in Luke 11. And what we're about to read is a massive change from how Peter was before, just a couple of months prior to this episode. But the boldness and courage and determination that he has is not because, you know, he just like, he got tougher all of a sudden, right? It's not just because, you know, this is who he is. Because we saw before, it absolutely was not who he was. This was the power of God at work in him through the spirit. He was weak. He's an untrained fisherman. 
And in that moment, God would be strong. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 9 through 11, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is so evident in the lives of these apostles who were running scared, you know, running for their lives to what they've become, sold out for the spread of the gospel. And um, this answer from Peter here is about as bold as it gets. It's about as bold as it gets. In verse nine, he says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. Remember I told you, that's not really why they're being examined, right? They're not really being examined because this guy wasn't walking and now he's walking. It's about the message that they're bringing. Jesus in John chapter 10, there was something very similar that, um, that was said. The, the people wanted to stone Jesus. They wanted to condemn Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. And Jesus says, which one of the good works of the many good works that I've done do you want to stone me for? Why do you want to kill me? And they tell him, it's, it's not because of the good work you're doing that we want to stone you, but it's because you are a man and you are making yourself as equal to God. One of the many God claims that Jesus made in scripture. And so they don't like the message that's being brought of the resurrection right here. And in verse 10, it says, um, Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Super, super bold claims here. I'm going to give you four of them that are just in these verses. One is is just Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's saying the person that you crucified, the man that's standing in front of you, he is well because of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, what's bold about the name, just the name that he's given well, one, one will say they could be pretty bold just because the guy's standing up walking and he wasn't before. So, so maybe it, it helps them and gives them a little bit of courage because that guy's standing there before them too. And they don't really have anything to say about that. But when they say Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus was a common name, right? But when they add that Christ to it, that is the Greek word for the Jewish Messiah. And so they are saying, your own Messiah, our own Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, you crucified him, you killed him. Extremely bold. Second bold claim is that God raised him from the dead. The man you killed is alive. You rejected him, but God accepted him. And since God accepted him, it's obvious that all the things that he taught that you disagreed with, that you got mad about, those things are true. Extremely bold. The third thing is that Jesus is the cornerstone that's promised in scripture. In Psalm 118, 12, we, um, we read the prophecy that says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In John 1, 11, uh, it says he, that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So Peter's saying, yeah, that prophecy, that prophecy about Jesus, about the cornerstone, it's about Jesus. And, and you're the guards and you're the keepers of the Jewish faith. You are the builders and you're building, your building's in bad shape because you've rejected the cornerstone. You've rejected the foundation stone. That's the stone that everything else has to be built on. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 21, Paul's writing to believers and says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus' death and his resurrection is foundational to our faith. Um, for anyone to be saved. And the apostles and the prophets have built on this foundation. And when you lead someone to the Lord, you are building on this. Those that have come before you, those that have led others to Christ, you're building on that. And then the last thing that we see that's extremely bold here is that he says salvation is only through Jesus. It only comes through Jesus. The one that you killed, the one that you rejected, the one that God accepted, salvation is only through him. You guys think that you're righteous or you're good or because of your lineage or because of your tithes or because of the way you fast, that salvation, that you have salvation, but it's only through Jesus. And when Jesus said in John 14, six, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the father except through me. He was telling the truth. He meant it, it's true. 
these claims were so unbelievably bold. And now the last one that I just, the last one, number four there, um, that no one enters heaven apart from Christ. Well, people, people don't like that so much, right? People wanna fight, fight that. Um, it, maybe it seems unfair, but listen, this is a reality and this is an uncompromising claim of Christianity. And you, you might hear an unbeliever say, I'm not a bad person. What have, you know, what have I done that, that I'm deserving of hell? Like I haven't killed someone. I haven't, you know, and, and try to kind of talk their way around that. And um, I'm gonna brag on, um, I'm gonna brag on one of our students for a second. I'm gonna brag on Evan Eubanks because he was t- talking to me about sharing the gospel with someone. And um, he was like, what else should I say? You know, I'm not sure if I've got it all right or not. And he shares this analogy with me that he, he told this person he's sharing the gospel with. And he said, it's not like that um, God is wanting to send you to hell. It's like you're living in a world that's full of sin and we all commit sin and you're on this ship and this ship is sinking. And Jesus has come and he's bringing a ship that you can get on and be saved. And it's, it's the only way that you can be saved. And if you choose just to continue to live for yourself and do your own thing, you're saying, no, I don't wanna get on the ship that's gonna save me. I'm gonna stay on the ship that's sinking. And, I, and I'd add to that, that anything on that ship um, that you're, you're trying to grab a hold of for salvation, your good works, um, that you, you grew up in church, you know, your religion, all that's going down. It's going down and it's sinking. But Jesus has brought a ship and salvation is there. If you choose not to get on it, it's not because God's sending you to hell, right? And so, um, and this is a teenager, right? Sharing this with someone. So, so what excuse do we have, right? He's being bold, trying to share his faith, right? What excuse do we have? Um, and I, I, I'll say about that, that maybe you get some pushback about like, okay, what about someone that hasn't heard the gospel? What about like an infant? Um, I'm gonna read a quote from, from David Guzik. He said, what about the infant who dies? What about the person who has never heard about Jesus? We can say that God will deal with them fairly and justly, and those who are saved will be rescued by the work of Jesus done on their behalf, even if they like the full knowledge of Jesus. But what about you who have heard and perhaps reject? So somebody's asking that question. What about this person? What about that person? We believe that God is fair. We believe that God is just. We believe we are to, supposed to take the gospel to people to get the, to those that are, you know, in Romans 1, they, they see that, you know, they believe there's a God and we're giving them more revelation and telling them about the one true God so they can have relationship with Jesus too. But a person that's using that as an excuse, you know, not to, when they've been presented with the truth, not to say, okay, I believe, and it's just rejecting the truth. It's just rejecting Christ. So Peter, he speaks boldly. And I want us to look at the response now from the Sanhedrin. Um, number four a life that proclaims you have been with Jesus. Verse 13, it says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And so they see the man, he's standing there healed. There's nothing they can really say, but I want us to focus on verse 13 more right now. Um, Peter and John were certainly uneducated, untrained in the sense that they hadn't had like rabbinical training. They, they didn't go to school for that. They were fishermen, but um, what they did have was on the job training. They knew scripture and they walked around with Jesus and heard Jesus teach for three years. And as someone myself right now that um, is doing seminary classes, and if you come to the church tonight at eight or nine or 10 or 11, I'm probably gonna be sitting in my office staring at a laptop and it's, it's miserable and I don't like it at all. But I'll say that I get way more from on the job training, from doing this, from speaking to you guys, from studying for a sermon, for going on a mission trip and sharing the gospel than I do with the seminary stuff. Not that it's bad, not that I don't need it, not that it's not good for me, but uh, just because someone's a pastor and they have like accolades that they've gone to a school or whatever, like you get more from on the job training, believe that. And so Peter and John did. And um, they, the word here that's used for boldness, they saw their boldness. It also refers to the ability to articulate. So they're seeing in them the same thing that they saw in Jesus. People had similar curiosity about Jesus. In Matthew 13, 54 and 55, speaking of Jesus, it says, coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not... Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Verse 13, it goes on and says, they looked at them 
and they heard them and it was obvious, it was obvious that they had been with Jesus. Would someone say that about you? Not that you're religious, not that you're a good person, not that your parents were religious, not that you go to church at this place or that place, but that they can see in your life that you have been with Jesus, that you have an appointment with Jesus, that you spend time with Jesus, that you talk to him, that you listen to him, that you're actively following him. Because if you're spending time with the Lord, real time with the Lord, it's gonna be reflected in the way that you live your life. Number five, a spirit-empowered life is a life that perseveres through persecution. Verses 15 through 18, the leaders say, um, it says when they commanded them to leave the council and conferred with one another, they say this, what shall we do with these men for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. This man's standing there walking, the disciples are gaining more and more of a following. What can we do? We can threaten them. We can try to find a plan to just like shut them up. If we have to eradicate them, get rid of them. If that's our last option, then we'll do that. Again, a parallel with Jesus. Jesus raised this man named Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And we see that they're trying, they start plotting, trying to find a way. He's getting too much popularity, trying to find a way to get rid of him. And in, in chapter 12, it shows that they even were, were talking about that we need to get rid of Lazarus. We need to kill him because people are saying, look, he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He was dead. And so a similar thing now that the, that the apostles are facing. But um, like the religious leaders did before, they get together after seeing an undeniable miracle. It says in verse 16 that they couldn't deny it. And their hearts are so hard to the truth that instead of acknowledging the miracle, repenting, falling on their faces, worshiping God, praising God for what he's done, they focus on damage control. They want people to be quiet, stop talking about this. They want the status quo. We don't need all this stuff, kind of messing up what we got going on here. We've had it going on for a long time. Don't mess it up. Don't cause attention from the Romans. And so they're so blinded by jealousy and power that they didn't even consider the fact that this man, he was healed. And maybe these guys are actually telling the truth. Instead, what do they want to do? They want to stop the spread of Christianity. They're worried about their positions and their authority being challenged or taken. And kind of a side note here is, I, I believe this is why it's hard for someone that, that's high ranking, high authority, has gained a lot of power in their lives that's not a believer in that moment to come to Christ. Why? Because you're telling someone that, and I'm not saying it's impossible, just like it's not possible, you know, it's not impossible for a rich man to enter heaven, but you're telling a person that has gained all this power by doing things they think how I, I want to do it, and you're telling them to humble themselves and fall at the feet of someone else and let someone else have complete control of their life. And so the authorities here, they're, they're so naive that they believe that Peter and John are gonna stop speaking about Jesus if they threaten him as if they already didn't understand that that was a real possibility when they were speaking about him. Jesus had already warned them of this, right? And so maybe they think like, well, they saw what we did to Jesus. If we tell them like, hey, we'll do this to you, we'll do this to your families, maybe that'll, that'll shut them up. But think about this for a minute though. If the resurrection was not real, the resurrection was something that was not true, it probably would have shut them up they probably wouldn't have kept talking the way that they were. They would have been right. The Sanhedrin would have been right. It would have stopped them if it was a fairy tale, but it wasn't a fairy tale. It was something that was so real in their lives that even threats on their lives were not gonna stop them from sharing this truth. Also, another thing to notice is that the religious leaders here, they're not arguing the facts of the case that's being brought, that they killed Jesus and that God raised him from the dead. If they had some kind of proof in that moment that... He's not raised from the dead, he's dead. You not think that that's coming out then, that they're talking about that. You don't really see that in these exchanges through Acts. And another thing to point out here about the persecution is that it's coming to them when they're doing what? When they're following Jesus, when they're using the platform to do what God has told them to do. It's not coming when they're doing something bad. It's coming when they're doing what's right. Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you live in in such a way, when you face um, suffering or just um, someone making fun of you or saying something, you know, that you you don't really like that, you don't want to create enemies for following Christ, Scripture says that you are blessed. And maybe you're like, well, I don't like the way it's set up like that. That seems unfair. Look to Jesus, who set the example for us. He committed no sin, but he was accused. He committed no sin, he was beaten. He committed no sin, he was crucified. The ultimate suffering servant. His disciples hadn't committed a crime here, right? But they're being told in verse 18, stop talking about Jesus. Don't talk about the resurrection anymore. And this is a reality for a lot of people, even here in America, right? Maybe not being threatened with your life, but it might be like, don't say this or don't say that because I I might lose my job if I do, or I can't talk about Jesus in that way, or I can't take a stand on this moral issue over here because if I do, you know, I might get in trouble. I might offend someone. I might lose a friend over it. But when the world threatens us, we're not called to concern ourselves with the threats. We're called to obedience. We're called to follow Christ. And he said, share the gospel. And he said, you are blessed. If you face persecution, when this comes, you are blessed. Instead, we decide a lot of times that, you know, God will understand. You know, he'll understand because I've got this thing going on. I can't really speak out about about that. And that way, he'll get it. He'll get it. You know, I don't want to be criticized. I don't want to get in trouble. Proverbs 3, 5, probably a a verse that they learned back back with the kids is, um, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. This is a time that if the apostles lean on their own understanding, their own understanding is self-preservation. That's how a lot of the world lives. That's how a lot of the church lives, self-preservation. But Jesus calls us to something else. And he says, if you're persecuted, you're blessed. Number six, last point, it's a life that proves you have one Lord. A spirit-empowered life is a life that proves you have one Lord. Verse 19, this is the response. This is how the apostles respond. I love these verses, some of my favorite verses in scripture. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The spirit compelled them to speak in this way and Jesus commanded them to speak in this way. In Acts 1-8, what we looked at all October with missions month and stuff, um, you'll receive power, power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And they're starting to live this out. And the persecution is starting to come. And if they ignored that in that moment and they listened to the Sanhedrin and it was like, okay, you know, self-preservation here, you realize it would have been a sin for them? James 4, 17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. These men didn't originate this message. They were witnesses of the message. They were called to tell about it and they weren't gonna stop doing that. They weren't gonna stop talking about what they had seen, what they had heard, no matter how many threats they got. So what had they seen and what had they heard? Here's just like not at all an extensive list, but a few things they had seen and heard. They saw Jesus heal the blind, heal the sick, the deaf, the lame. They saw him walk on water. They saw him calm a storm. They saw him feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. They saw him die. They saw him rise again, him walk around in his resurrected body. They saw him ascend into heaven. Um, They saw the founding of the church at Pentecost. What did they hear? They heard Jesus's teachings. They heard about how to love God, how to love others. They heard about the kingdom of heaven. They heard about how to be saved. They heard that they would be persecuted. They heard about how Jesus would build his kingdom and they heard about how he would return. They saw these things, they heard these things, they witnessed these things, and most of all, they believed it. They had faith in it. They believed that it was true. And because they believed that it was true, it changed everything about them. And it changed the way they lived and it changed the way they spoke and it changed the people that they went and they spoke to. They were bold. And their circumstances would tell them not to do this. Their circumstances would tell them this is not the smartest choice. Don't let your circumstances determine your level of obedience. What have you seen? What have you heard in your life? If you have a relationship with Jesus, if you know him, if you've seen him, if you've heard from him, if you love him, 
then you're called to speak about that boldly. You're, you're called to share that. So pray for boldness. Pray that you would be bold, starting in your family, in your job, in the world. And don't change the way that you're living and what you're speaking about because your circumstances change. These men, they're persecuted and they're continue, they, persecution continues. It ramps up as the book of Acts goes on and they continue to proclaim the name of Jesus boldly. They were faithful. Why? Because they have one Lord, because Jesus was their Lord. Our circumstances can't determine our boldness, but our faith must. Our faith must determine it. Finally, um, one thing, one last thing I'll touch on here. And there could be a whole sermon series on this. This could be a whole sermon and uh, I'm just gonna touch on it very briefly. What, are, what they're doing here is civil disobedience, okay? And if you read Romans 13, somebody might read that and say, well, we're supposed to listen to governing authorities. And we live in a time where that's a conversation, right? We're supposed to listen to governing authorities. They wouldn't have said what they said, right? If they were doing what they were supposed to and listening to governing authorities. So yes, by all means, Christians should be the best citizens, should pay your taxes, should obey the laws. Absolutely. But I believe this is important for, for, for our church and, and for the church in the West as well. When is civil disobedience acceptable? When human authority tells you to disobey God, Jesus has to be your ultimate authority. And so human authority said, stop talking about Jesus. What did Jesus say? Make disciples of all nations can't do that if you're not talking about him, right? And so Peter and John, they're, they're forced to politely decline. Like I said, they weren't looking for a fight, but they're forced to politely decline because they answered to God ultimately. He was their one Lord. Francis Schaeffer, um, the theologian said this, if there is never a case where a Christian would practice civil disobedience, then the state has become Lord. One either confesses that God is the final authority or that Caesar is Lord. And so when, when man's law contradicts God's authority, the authority of God, that's when we have to be prepared to, to take a stand, have to be prepared to be bold and to submit to God's authority first. So if, if he's Lord, then, then live like it. If he's Lord, then talk to people like he is Lord. Tell others about him like he is Lord. Jesus said in Luke six forty six, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? How we're called to live and what we're called to do as children of God, it, it's in scripture, it's there, it's, it's given to us. It's time that if we, if we proclaim him, if we say that he's Lord, that we live like it. Verses 21 and 22, and we'll be done. 21 says, and when they heard, had, had further threatened them, so they threatened them some more, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So they threatened them more. The, the persecution, it was there and it was coming, but they couldn't deny the work that God was doing. They couldn't deny what was being done in the church. And the people praised God for what was being done for this man that had been healed. And, um, and, and next week, when Joel gets back and he, he's speaking on Acts 4, you'll see the response. The response is that these believers get together and they pray. And it's not you know, it's not safety. There's not, nothing about safety in what they're praying for. They pray for boldness that they would continue to do what God had told them to do. So if I was sticking with that P theme and had like 30 more minutes, I could do a point about praise and then a point about prayer here, but I'll, I'll save that for Joel and let him do it. Um, but the way that these men go from scared disciples to these bold apostles really makes no sense apart from the resurrection of Christ. It makes no sense. They're not gaining anything worldly speaking from this. It doesn't make any sense apart from a risen savior that they had seen, that they had walked with, that they had heard from. And it doesn't make sense if they're not empowered by the Holy Spirit, which has changed them. But it makes perfect sense when you realize that all of these things happened, that all of these things are true. And they couldn't help but speak about what was true. They couldn't help but speak about what they had seen and what they had heard. So, so what have you seen and heard? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him personally? Can people look at you and tell that you've been with him? Are you living that kind of lifestyle? Does your life demonstrate that he's the one Lord of your life? I want everyone to just bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. 
And maybe God has not radically changed your life. Maybe you've said a prayer or you've done some religion. You've, you've um, spent time in your life in church, but you wouldn't say that he's king, that he's Lord, or maybe you would say it, but then you examine your life and say, I certainly haven't lived like that. If you've never received Jesus into your life, I wanna give you that opportunity this morning to do that. The Bible says that the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. And, and we all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty is separation, total separation from God eternally. But there's a free gift and that free gift is eternal life through what Jesus has done. If you are trusting, if you're relying on anything else, if you think that you'll stand before God and he'll see that you were a better person than you were a bad person, it's something that's futile. Only relationship with Jesus, only knowing Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior can save. And so if that's you this morning, I wanna um, just lead you in, in prayer. And uh, there's nothing that, that comes out of your uh, mouth necessarily that's saving if it's not there in the heart first. So, um, but I wanna give you that opportunity. And if the Lord is tugging on your heart and you feel like the, the Lord is telling you that, hey, you've done a lot of religion, done a lot of church stuff, but you never trusted me as your Lord and Savior. You pray this morning and say, God, I, I believe, Lord, that you love me. And I believe, Jesus, that you came and lived a perfect life and that you died for my sins. And I believe that you rose again. And I pray that you would forgive me, God, because I know that I've sinned. And I believe with what you say about my sin. I believe that it separates me from you. And I pray, God, that you would give me new life in Christ. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would come into my life and that you would save me. I wanna follow you as my Lord and be bold. Just radically change me from the inside out, God. And for those in here that know Jesus as Lord, God, I pray that you would just help us, Lord. Strengthen us to be bold and to be courageous and to share your word and to be obedient to you. Not let our circumstances determine how obedient or how disobedient we are to you, God. Help us to be steadfast in our faith and to share the gospel with others and to work to see your kingdom growth, God, to lead others to you. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this opportunity, Lord speak this morning. And I thank you, Lord, for every single person that's here, for those that are listening, God. Lord, I pray that you would just cut through all of the junk and that you would just bring people, Lord, to you and that you would just help us, God, to be your vessels in doing that. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast, and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.